What's up, you beautiful listeners? It's your boy, Orange Mocha Frappuccino, a.k.a. Rabbi Can't Lose, a.k.a. Noah Kagan. Today's guest I spent one and a half years trying to get, and we got him. His name is Brian Wansink, and he wrote my favorite diet book of all time. You might know him as the author of Mindless Eating or Slim by Design. And this book has changed my life completely about how I eat, and it has nothing to do with diets like, oh, the watermelon diet or put butter in coffee diet or whatever it is. So it's nachos time. But we have a great conversation about what to actually do to change your behaviors and not your diet to help you lose weight. The three major things you're going to learn today is number one, how to trick your body and mind into losing weight without changing how you eat. Number two, tips to handle critics and haters. Brian actually had a lot of this recently, which I was surprised about. Number three, why colors, yes, colors influence how much you eat and other little things like that that will help you. You'll learn these three things and more. Enjoy. What was like the first research you did? And then, because I think for people who maybe don't know about you, when if they're not thinking about mindless eating, what expectations should they have? And what was the first thing you did around that? Well, the first thing I did around that was I was doing some work looking at how package size influenced how much people ate. And I was doing this in Philadelphia and we were giving people like, 100 calorie size packs, like four of them, where we we're giving them a big 400 calorie package. We we're using wheat thins and M&Ms, things like this. And all of a sudden we realized that once we gave people smaller packages, unpredictably, they all of a sudden just started eating less, even though there's the same total amount. They'd eat one or two bags, they kind of go, that's it, I'm through. And that's what kicked all this off. And actually, that's what actually also ended up resulting in the 100 calorie pack that you see in all these packaged goods companies. Because once we discovered that, I went on the road and told, I mean, Mars and Nabisco and Kellogg's, look, there's people out there who will pay more money for less food because you're helping. (laughs) And I think that prompted a lot of research as to what are the unconscious things around us, whether it be the conversation you're having with the person there, whether it be the distance, the cereal boxes from your hand, whether it be the size of a plate, what are the things around you that unknowingly mess you up? And how can you change them to work with you rather than against you? For 99% of all people, just diets don't work because they're based on physical deprivation and actually on psychological deprivation. And neither of those work for a person. If you really, really like anything, whether it be television or affection or playing tennis, Tell yourself you can't do it anymore is going to do nothing more than eventually backfire. So the solution then for 90% of us maybe is not to keep a food journal and to count calories and to kind of starve ourselves, but it's just a separate environment. So we end up eating a little less and a little better and liking it more. So when I get my PhD, the overall kind of model of how consumers think is that they do things in an incredibly rational way. They weigh alternatives, they look at all sorts of attributes, and they make a decision. (laughs) And I realized, I think, holy cow, this is nowhere close to the way I make decisions, let alone low involvement decisions. And the vast majority of eating decisions are tremendously low involvement. Most of us can't even remember what we had for breakfast, let alone be able to recreate why it was we decided to have three handfuls of cereal instead of this or instead of that or instead of skipping breakfast like we did yesterday. The smartest person you know in the world can't really tell you why they had what they had for lunch today. I mean, they can stumble out some sort of explanation, but it's not the real reason. If you were to say, really, do you think the same thing would have happened if the lights were turned up a little bit more or if the waiter or waitress 
came to you from your left hand side rather than your right hand side. In general, let's say on average, the typical person needs about 2,000 calories a day. Okay, like a candy bar has about 250 calories. So you need, on average, let's say about eight candy bars before you either lose weight or gain weight. You eat more than eight candy bars, you gain weight. <laughs> well, a lot of diets are based on tremendously cutting out the amount of calories in your diet. So instead of having 2,000, they would set you up to eat maybe 600. But you eat that much less than what you need to keep going. Yeah, you're going to lose weight, but you're going to know it. Your mind's going to feel like you're deprived. Your body's going to feel deprived. Actually, you're going to slow down its metabolism. And it's not very sustainable. However, if you eat plus or minus about 300 to 400 calories less, it's not enough for your body really to realize. So as a result, you slowly lose weight without realizing, without having to backfire and eat something because you think you're hungry. And we call this the mindless margin. And then, you know, let's say one less candy bar a day. You say, well, big deal. That's not going to make a big difference for me. It's like, yes, it will. If you eat one less candy bar that you typically ate every day, you're going to weigh somewhere between 18 and 22 pounds less than you currently eat at the end of the year. Now, for somebody who wants to lose 20 pounds by their high school reunion, that's, that's not the way to do it. But it is a sustainable way for most people. It's interesting because probably from your book, I only use small forks because, <laughs> you know, I think that was something from a smaller plate, smaller forks, different size cups. I think my girlfriend's like, I don't know why you always use the small ones. So it made me start thinking, I was like, I think that is from you. Maybe can you walk us through how your life changed and how your eating changed? And I think what's interesting is this is a great illustration because we found that the actual utensil you eat from doesn't really have any impact what and how much you eat. What has the impact is the serving utensil. Okay, so the thing is that once you put something on your plate, on average, we eat about 92% of anything we serve ourselves. So if it ends up being on our plate, we're going to eat it. But what influences how much you put in our plate, though, ah. is the size of the serving spoon, the size of the serving fork. And that's why we do things with forks and spoons in terms of serving yourself. That's exactly true. If you serve yourself with a smaller fork, you serve yourself about 14% less. Oh, interesting. So it's not only having a smaller plate, because if you fill it up, you're like, hey, I've got more food. But if you use a smaller thing to serve it, regardless of what yeah. you're eating it with, that's interesting. Because normally I'm just using a small fork, but having a smaller serving utensil. Yeah. I've got three young girls in the house. And instead of having you know, the big serving spoon or tongs or things like this, which tend to result in you over-serving yourself. And again, like I said, you eat 92% of anything you serve yourself. What we do is just, we downsize things so that there's a, a normal tablespoon is what they serve themselves with. They do three or four spoonfuls and seems like enough. <laughs> what are the things in the way that your kitchen's set up or the way that you go out your day, you know, maybe other people haven't realized? It's really interesting. My more recent book, which is called Slim by Design, what we've done is we actually come with a 100-point scorecard. So you can go through and you can actually score your kitchen to see whether it's making you Slim by design, or whether it's making you heavy by design, whether it's making you fit, or whether it's making you fat. And there's stuff on the table. So we can just take the table, and a few things on the table, and it being, like you said, the size of a plate, size of the serving spoon, the distance from you that the food is sitting, whether it's within two and a half feet or more than three and a half feet, makes a difference. There's also then the way your kitchen itself is set up. Now, if you had to redesign your kitchen, yeah, there's a lot of things you could do. 
make your kitchen a little less snack prone, a little more prone to encouraging cooking and eating leftovers and stuff. But it's not worth it. It's not worth rearranging your kitchen so you can eat a little bit less. Because most of what you can do, you can do without changing the design of it. We did a really cool study a while back. We called it the Syracuse study because we actually did it in Syracuse, New York. We, we went to about 230-some households there, took photos of everybody's kitchen and asked them a bunch of questions. And then we weighed the family. One of the things we did is then we correlated what things is it that are associated with heavier people. And we found, for instance, that if you've got cookies or potato chips sitting out anywhere in the kitchen, on average, you're going to weigh between 8 and 11 pounds more than the neighbor next door who doesn't. But if you've got a fruit bowl sitting out, you're going to weigh on average about 12 pounds less. So there's a lot of things like this. And you say, well, do you really know for sure that if you have cookies sitting in the middle of your counter, that you're going to necessarily eat them? Because I think I have pretty good willpower. That's what they're thinking. Maybe you do. Maybe you are the uh, exception. We've got this saying in our lab that says, if you want to be skinny, you do what skinny people do. And if skinny people do have a fruit bowl that does have two or more types of fruit in it, well, you know, it's probably not going to hurt you. I'm curious, as you said, you have three daughters. Do they like, dad, we're tired of these forks and we're tired of like having fruit shit everywhere. Like, give me a darn Coca-Cola now. You know, like what's the reaction of your daughters with the psychology of eating? The thing about doing all this is nobody knows. You know, I've had like tons of people send letters or say things like, you know, I changed these small couple things I do, or maybe they change a whole lot of things they do. My whole family's like losing some weight or eating better, but nobody think knows why. They can't figure out why. Because putting something in a smaller serving bowl or just not having breakfast cereal sitting out, a box of breakfast cereal sitting on the counter, it's not noticeable to most people. So they will eat less, but they won't know it. And that's why we call it mindless eating. When the original book, Mindless Eating, first came out, I would talk to people and it might be reporters or it might be dietitians, and they'd say, so I want to talk to you about your idea of mindful eating. I'm like, no! <laughs> That's what you're about. You're about writing the food diary and counting calories and reading labels. I'm not about that because normal people don't do that. So that's the solution to mindless eating. It's not mindful eating for most of us. It's simply rearranging things in your life so you can mindlessly eat without thinking about it. Yeah. I guess the point you're making is your daughters don't even realize it. And yeah. some of the ways that I behave now is actually now that I'm finally talking with you, it's because of your book. Like when I serve myself chips, I take it out of the bag, I put it on the plate and I put the bag yeah. away versus mindlessly eat as many as possible. Uh, yeah. Or another yeah. one of your ones I liked was like, you put your food in the cupboards, you don't see it all the time. You don't have to use that willpower. I think there's just like so many great things that I don't have to worry about a diet. What are some of the small things that anyone listening you recommend either at home or maybe at the office or when they go grocery? What are some of the like the three like I hate when people say three, but well the one would be if you want to eat a little bit less, the smaller plate seems to work for almost everybody. And you say, Well, no, I would know that I'm tricking myself. Well, <laughs> you don't. But second of all, yeah, you know, if you give yourself like a Barbie sized plate, maybe <laughs> you can't be a silly person about this. We find that as long as you don't go below nine inches, it's fine. Almost everybody we've done stuff with eats significantly less, significantly being 15 to 25% less. 
that's an easy change to make. I mean, the second easy change to make might be the putting all the tempting snacks and out of the way cupboard or one that's very inconvenient. So yeah, they're still there. It's not like you're vanquishing them from the house, but it's just that, you know, you got to think twice <laughs> in the case of your kids or if you have a shorter spouse, we have ours in top cupboards in the laundry room. <laughs> you have to be really hungry to want to go get potato chips that are in a chlorine scented room and find a stool to get up to pull them down. And then there's a lot of things that you can do to in your workplace. And actually, if people go to the website healthierbydesign.org, you can find all sorts of things that you can do in your workplace and that they can do to help you eat less. What's your thought with all the latest trends? So like paleo and keto is popular and, and putting butter in your coffee. And I think what I'm always surprised about is that if you go on Amazon, the top 20 popular most books sold, like five or 10 are new diets. Yeah. Uh, what, what's your take on it? Because I'm like, why don't you just read your book and just realize it's a lot about the psychology and how you're interacting with whatever food you're doing? Yeah. One thing that very impatient Americans have become accustomed to is getting something right away, whether it be winning the lottery or whether it be anything. And so I think there's something very magic about saying, about looking at something that promises it's going to help you lose 20 pounds and, you know, before you're high school reunion this summer. <laughs> <laughs> and most behavioral changes can't promise that. They can promise very small things. Otherwise, they just become too painful. And anything that becomes painful for most people doesn't last. At best, it becomes a medicine you take until you're no longer sick. And then you just go back to your same old ways. The thing about these really exotic new diets. I didn't hear about <laughs> putting butter in your coffee. Oh, that's po it's really popular. Oh, really? Okay. Okay. Maybe I need to get out of the cave here. And, uh, I'm also not a coffee drinker. So the thing about a lot of these is they can show results as long as they don't hurt you physically. And they're not necessarily to be minimized in terms of the impact they can have on you. They can jumpstart a small change in your life, a change in your habits or change in your trends. So let's say, for instance, let's say you're going to be doing the bubblegum uh, standing on one foot diet. Okay. And the bubblegum standing one foot diet means that for one minute before every meal, you stand on your foot for one minute and chew bubblegum. Mm, I love that one. It's a good diet. Yeah, but it have no impact on you physiologically. But what it would do is it make you say, you know, I'm changing routine in my life. I'm becoming conscious of routine. By virtue of becoming conscious of routine, I'm now all of a sudden a little bit more conscious that, you know, I don't need two bags of potato chips. I don't need to eat my bag of potato chips and ask if you're going to finish yours. And so what it does is it just breaks a person into thinking a little bit more broader than they otherwise would. Do you have a guilty pleasure? Do you have a latest guilty pleasure? You know, I drink so much diet. Cola. It's crazy. And I don't even care what kind. I mean, as you can see, this is just a generic. Yeah. What brand is that? I think it's like Pops Cola, which would be like a store brand. I don't like coffee. So. Well, I think that's one of the things I've really appreciated about your message is that a lot of the diets, it's like, you're going to have to do the bubblegum diet, or now we do butter in it, or now you have to have this restriction. And you're like, I don't care what you do. Do the alcohol diet, whatever one you want, but just let me help you. <laughs> Probably don't do that one. We doesn't recommend it. The Patron diet. Yeah. You're just like, look, <laughs> do whatever diet you want, but let me just show you things so that you're at least saving calories and being smart about being intentional about what you're eating or not eating. Which thing do you think you bring up when you say it? People are like, that's not true. Is there anything that you, when you tell people this? 
Oh, you know, it's a great, great question. Well, after I've been doing this for about 10 years, I've been doing this sort of research for almost 30 years now, but specifically about food for about 20. And after about maybe eight years of doing it, there's always a question we ask people at the end of the study. And we'd always ask them, you know, whether we gave them big buckets in a movie theater or whether we changed things in the pizza restaurant they're eating or we went to all-you-can-eat pizza buffet. And what we find is that people who sit within 15 feet of a Chinese buffet, they eat 30% more than people who sit farther than 40 feet. Do you think sitting close to the buffet influenced you? And they go, no, 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 no way, no way. Uh-uh. Or in a study, we'll say, oh, do you think the size of the plate you're eating off of influenced you? He's like, no, it's crazy talk. And so and what we found is over all these different things, it's on average. There's only 6% of people we ask these things to. We say, this is what happens to most people. Do you think it happened to you? There's only 6% of them who say, you know, it might have. And about 30% will say, well, you know, I see where it could influence other people, but nah, it didn't influence me. And about two-thirds of, mo- of all people will say, you know, that's about the craziest thing I've heard because that wouldn't influence anyone at all. And that's the real power of this, is that it has this impact on us because we all want to think that we're smarter than a bowl. We want to think that we're smarter than our plate size and things like this. And so that's why it catches up on people. And how do you think about which things, like maybe now, like what things you're like, I'm going to try figuring out how to do groceries or the new experiments you have or the things you're trying to solve? Yeah, it's a great question. The nice thing about food is that you encounter it every day. And if you say, hmm, you say, well, I wonder what might be not just influencing me, but what could be turned around to make it work in the other direction. So for instance, we did some stuff a while back that looked at how color influence how much believe. You can't go, well, so what are you going to do? Change your light bulb? No, that's stupid. <laughs> but you know, what are some other contexts in which colors sort of influence people? And it's like, when you eat breakfast in the morning, because that breakfast cereal box is really super colorful. And it's like, it's got stars and moons and clovers. It's got red and yellow all over it. What if that box weren't very colorful? Would you still eat as much? And we found that no, you don't, because it just doesn't look as tasty. It's not as attractive to stick around. But no cereal company in the right mind is going to say, well, let's make a box that's just all browns <laughs> and tans so people eat less. No, but, but what you can really easily do is you can go and find just a large Tupperware container and transfer the cereals over to that. All of a sudden, it doesn't have the bright colors. It doesn't have the enticing packaging. And what we find is people are less likely to continue to eat the cereal till their milk's gone. Do you keep that stored in the bathroom? <laughs> you know why? This is the exact same container that we have the dog food in. <laughs> you can see this isn't cereal. It's dog food. But the thing about both of them is they both look like dog food. You know, I'm curious, what experiments or research didn't work that you're disappointed about? So, because I was thinking, you're like, oh, cereal colors, the color's got to make a difference. And you do the experiment, and you're like, oh, it doesn't matter. Yeah, there's a bunch of studies. So, we did a lot of stuff with colors, and we found that a lot of the color research doesn't work. I mean, the only thing we found is that if you change plate colors and the color of the thing you're eating off of, it has more of an impact than the colors around you. But I think there's also just a lot of things that don't work because they're more complex. So, we did some really cool stuff in fast food restaurants where we do makeovers 
And instead of having like the bright lights, for instance, we would have a separate room that we would make very nice, kind of dark with some off spotlights and soft music and things like this. And our initial thought was that it would influence how much people ordered and took and ate. But it didn't. They still ate the same amount of food. Now, they happened to like it a lot more, but they ate food until it got cold and then they stopped eating. So in the fast food restaurant, they ate a little bit less, but it wasn't as dramatically different as we thought. And in real restaurants, it was the exact same amount of food because people ordered what they got, regardless of what the lighting and the music level was. What it did change over was how much they drank. The softer the lighting and the slower the music, the more alcohol they drank. Why do you think that is? Well, I think they just stuck around longer. With most restaurants, you order food and you don't say, hey, that was good. I think I'll have myself another pot roast. (laughs) No, you've already ordered it. So (laughs) you're not going to order more on top of it. We thought they would order more dessert. But no, in a nice restaurant, they ate about the same amount. The predictable irrational, I think he did some studies. I think it's been a while, but I guess where it was like how many people you eat with and how many other things like. Have you looked at like pricing and maybe geography in America as an impact on eating? Yeah, you know, we have. And I think that's one thing about like geography and pricing and things like this is it's the results aren't as interesting as you'd kind of think. Because, you know, let's say, for instance, that we find that somebody from a small town in the South eats 20% more French fries than somebody from, I don't know, Toronto or New York City or whatever. It's like, "Mm, well, so what is it? Because maybe they make less income. Is it because they work a harder job? Is it because they only eat two meals a day or three meals a day? Is it because they like potatoes more? You know, so all of a sudden, you can't answer the why behind it. So if you find it, it's just like, well, okay, so what? So there's not really as much news you can use. What's kind of interesting about pricing is that there's a lot of people out there who think that Here's what we'll do. We'll just change the prices of everything and people will only, they'll have to eat healthy. And it's just (laughs) not the way it works because food ends up being a kind of a nice indulgence for a lot of people. And if you say, well, I'm going to raise the price of this candy bar by 50%, it's like, okay, well, I'm going to buy a different candy bar. Okay, we're going to raise the price of all candy bars by 50%. It's like, okay, I'm going to buy cookies. It's not that people say, okay, I'm going to change my eating habits. They'll look for other substitutes. Why have you not used your research for evil? I'm like thinking about it. I'm like, if I worked at a food company, I work at a tech company, I'd be like, yo, professor, let's go here. We're going to make them eat all this stuff. We're going to buy more. Well, you know, I think that there's so much more to be gained from helping people eat healthier. My personal mission in life is to make millions of people healthier and happier. Now, the way through this first 30 years I've focused that career, the healthier is how much they eat. You know, to get people to eat more snack food wouldn't be that interesting making it healthier snack food or making healthier snack food more craveable. Because again, people, they're looking for substitutes. And if you can give them a healthy substitute that tastes good, that they think is going to be more convenient, more attractive, either in terms of their expectation or how it looks or how it tastes and more normal to eat, they'll be guided toward that. So that would be the way to work with a company to make people healthier and happier and also let the company make more money. You know, I was researching and I definitely recommend everyone to go buy your mindless eating book and I'm going to go get Slim by Design so I can check that out. I'll tell you, I was shocked because I started doing more research recently and there were some people that were kind of like have like a witch hunt or like out for you. And for me, I was like, I don't care what it is because personally your stuff has impacted me positively and it's changed my life. What was going on with that? 
Well, you know, we do have sort of a basic idea of solving and sharing that we try to solve real problems and we try to share a solution that's reasonable. And that doesn't always resonate with everybody. You know, a lot of people are looking maybe more for their decimal precision. We're looking for things that are solutions and which can then be kind of widely shared and move the needle in that direction. Because, you know, the ultimate test of, I think, science is not just replicability, but it's replicability in the field. That if things work in real life, if actually gravity works in real life like it does in the field, then gravity's a thing. If 16 people replicate it in a lab, but it doesn't work in real life, and you and I can throw a football 7,000 yards, then gravity probably isn't having a problem. And so that's the great thing about this stuff is that the letters and the emails and the stuff that have gotten over the years where people have kind of implemented this and say, in the last year, I've lost 32 pounds. My husband's lost 45 pounds. We just made one change because it points to the direction of truth and practice. How do you not get discouraged? How do you deal with that? Because mentally, I'm like, look, I'm doing research and people are getting impacted and I feel like I'm doing good, but I've got these kind of negative people around me or I've got people criticizing me. You know, I think what you want to focus on is who your real stakeholders are. When I got in this field 30 some years ago, I got in because I wanted to make people's lives healthier and happier. And I didn't want to have hundreds of thousands of citations from other academics who could say, wow, wow, wow. It's nice when that happens, but the whole focus has been on consumers. And even like with the Smarter Lunchroom stuff, we've taken a lot of these ideas and we've rolled them out there in schools in terms of a checklist so that, you know, rearranging your lunchroom and using signage that makes certain foods more attractive than others and changing things so it seems normal to behave, to take an apple, for instance, than it was yesterday. And these things are having an impact even on kids. And so that's the true audience for my research. It's people who are going to change their behavior. The one thing I was thinking with that is that everyone has to eat. What if you use your magic on focusing on like fitness per se? Yeah. Or like what are mindless fitness habits? Like I have stupid rules. Like I never take an escalator if there's stairs. Yeah, it's neat, neat, neat. And so I'm curious, I was thinking, oh man, if things like fitness or things that you could do that would, you know, massive and consumer change. That's exactly right. And the thing is, is find out how these things nest together. Because the very cool thing is, is if you change your physical activity, for instance, it has a referred impact on a bunch of other things. Most people really don't like to exercise. When you do it, they say, hey, do you tend to eat a little bit better on the days when you exercise? And most people say, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Do you think you tend to sleep a little bit better on days when you exercise? Like, yeah, yeah, you know. Hey, what about your stress? Do you feel maybe a little bit less stressed out or at least immediately after you finish? It's like, yeah, kind of. So you see that there are things that a person can do that have these referred impact on all the changes that are the foundation of behavioral health. And so looking at these, what are the one or two changes you can make in a day, for instance, that bam, make the difference with everything else. And last thing is that how did you find your purpose? I think that's a, something that a lot of people are kind of always looking for, including myself. And it sounds like very early on, you're like, my purpose is health and happiness for people through food, at least originally. How did you come to that recognition? Do you remember? It's just when you say that, because I mean, when I was a little boy, my dad worked in the food industry and we were grew up in Iowa and there's a layoff of this plant. And if you have a one income household and there's a layoff, I mean, it is it huge stress. And I remember the eight months or 10 months or something that he's laid off, just cranked up my view toward the importance and meaning of food. My interest in food and changing, helping people appreciate food more 
eat healthier. I didn't really, really care about eating less because that was back then when weight wasn't the problem. But that's kind of the way it's turned since then. Thank you for uh, sharing your story. Yeah. Think, it was funny. I was reading some of the Slim by Design quotes and just I think it's kind of nice to finish with that. This person left a review on Amazon saying that without explanation, I implemented some of these changes, reduced paper plates to eight inches, replaced the flavored coffee, put a fruit bowl out. And her family and her, one has lost 25 pounds and on average, people have lost five pounds in the time frame without even really realizing it from your book and your material. Well, that's great. It's really cool. I mean, the thing is, it's a slow process. Nobody says, oh, I lost 40 pounds last week because of you. <laughs> unless, unless they gave birth, you know, I don't know. <laughs> hey, the next diet, the birthing diet. <laughs> that's right. I'm going to write that one down. I'm going to write that one down. <laughs> Well, that's a wrap. I hope you liked the episode. Before you close the podcast, here's two things I'd be grateful if you did. Number one, first say hi to Brian on Twitter at Brian, W-A-N-S-I-N-K, Brian Wansink, and his website, slimbydesign.com. Go thank him for the episode. Number two, go buy his book if you enjoyed this and want to learn more. There's Mindless Eating and Slim by Design. Finally, text someone you love them. Yo, dog, let's be healthy together and go get a kale smoothie. Have a lovely day. What's your favorite snack?